Welcome to Oco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Oco Farm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy at East Tennessee State University. Uh, for those of you who may be new uh, listeners, let me tell you a little bit about what we tend to do on this podcast. I tend to, uh, every Thursday, drop about a 15-minute episode. Uh, oftentimes over recent updates that have been published in the last week, as in the case this week. Uh, every now and then we'll do a landmark uh, onco- oncology study and, and kind of give you the historical context and significance of that. And, and we'll also do uh, the foundations of oncology and talk about basic chemotherapy uh, and drugs we use to treat cancer. So today let's talk about two studies, one of which... Uh, we've already mentioned, and that is the, the first uh, comparison head-to-head of a calibrutinib versus a brutinib. This was presented at ASCO in June, um, and I went over those top-line results. The publication is out in JCO, um, and you can find that. That's by, I believe it's Bird uh, and colleagues published this, BYRD. Uh, so, you know, I, I'll go over briefly what this was. I've ever done this on the pod um, and, and bring back some, some maybe some practical significance uh, between these agents. So, this was second-line treatment of CLL. Uh, nowadays, we'd probably use uh, a BTK inhibitor in almost everybody frontline. Uh, so this is a you know an older study. So you know you can you can try to see maybe some, a trend towards improvement with a calibrutinib versus brutinib in the second-line study. And even if you even if you bought that, uh, which you, the statistics don't support that. Uh, even if you bought that, it's in the second-line setting. The question is in the first-line setting going forward. I do think it's very reasonable to compare the toxicity head-to-head, and we do see more toxicity with a brutinib, a less, uh, a less potent uh, BTK inhibitor than a calibrutinib, which is a, a little cleaner of a BTK inhibitor than a brutinib, it appears. Uh, so a brutinib had more diarrhea uh, significantly, both any grade and grade 3, more uh, arthralgia, more hypertension, and quite a bit more hypertension, 23% versus 9% of any grade hypertension. Grade 3 hypertension, it's a systolic above 160, 8.7% versus 4.1%. More than twice as much, uh, still less than 1 in 10 would have that with the brutinib. Uh, more contusion, bumps, I guess? I don't know what they mean by contusion. Uh, more AFib, uh, significantly more 15.6% versus 9%. This is something that I was really interested in seeing long-term with the calibrutinib. You know, 9% is, is a decent amount, um, you know, in the ballpark of 15.6%, but certainly more with the brutinib, uh, more UTIs with the brutinib, more back pain, more muscle spasms, and more dyspepsia. Now, it's not all uh, roses for, uh, for a calibrutinib. There was more headache with a, a calibrutinib and more cough and more grade three fatigue, 3.4% versus 0%. And this was a study of more than 500 people. Um, so, so this is useful. We kind of expected this. Uh, obviously, when this came out at, at ASCO, we kind of knew this. Nothing, uh, I, I think, terribly new here. Uh, but we do get a look at, at the exclusion criteria, which maybe weren't clear. So they excluded people with significant cardiovascular disease. So if you have somebody with significant cardiovascular disease, your intuition might say, oh, well, calibrating is safer because there's less AFib and less hypertension. And I understand that thought process, but we don't have great data, at least from this study of a calibrating in such a patient. Uh, they also include people on warfarin or vitamin K antagonists and anybody on a PPI, which if you're American and you have cancer, it, my experience, 100% of you are on PPIs. I'm, not, I'm kidding, but a lot of folks are on PPIs and and calibrutinib is insoluble, almost at pH above 6. Uh, PPIs will get your pH in your stomach up to 5, up to maybe 6. So um, if you have a, a, a PPI uh, and need to be on a PPI, you, you maybe are stuck with uh, using a brutinib. 
Now, a, 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 a patient comes to mind recently we saw in clinic with CLL, very frail, not fit. Um, you know, the physician has been putting off treatment as long as possible, and now the patient's, you know, got bulky disease and is developing some cytopenias where they probably need treatment. The thinking is this patient could not tolerate full dose of any BTK inhibitor. So, a brutinib, the dose is 420 milligrams. You can do 280, you can do 140. So you can cut the dose in a third with the brutinib. With a calibrutinib, you've got the 100 milligrams BID dose. You can do 100 daily. Uh, that is a dose reduction for toxicity, but it's a capsule. You can't really split the dose. I suppose you could try to mix it in applesauce off-label and give a fraction of it, but that would be a little bit wasteful. Um, so you can see uh, an environment where maybe a severely dose-reduced ibrutinib, one-third of the starting dose at 140 milligrams a day, maybe is something you do just to, just to see if a patient can tolerate it for those folks. This is kind of the real world of oncology and illustrates that, that what we see in the clinical trials are not uh, certainly congruent or similar even to the patients we see uh, in practice and does require uh, you know, the art of medicine, so to speak. So not a lot new there. Uh, unless you're new to the podcast, that's kind of uh, what we tend to, to talk about on here. And the last study I'm going to talk about here, short podcast today, is the Vidaza Allo study. And I haven't done stem cell transplant in over a decade. So we'll keep this very, very like 30,000 foot view. This is from a, a German group. Uh, and this is a comparison of uh, azacitidine versus allo transplant in people with MDS. Uh, all these patients got four cycles of azacitidine, and then if they had a donor, either a matched sibling or a 10 out of 10 unrelated donor, they got a reduced intensity conditioning uh, regimen prior to, uh, to transplant. Now, the, the results here are kind of what you would expect, but before I get to that, let me just go over uh, the demographics here. 162 people originally on this trial, uh, they were 55 to 70, so older, but the, the age was capped at 70. Uh, most of them were intermediate to or high-risk MDS, the folks you would think would go on to transplant. And we know that these folks, uh, the intermediate and high-risk folks, do have benefit from azacitidine versus like best supportive care, like just plain old low-dose cytarabine or something like that. Uh, most of them were ECOG-1. Now, most of these patients went on to get transplant. And when I say most, I'll say a plurality of patients went on to get transplant. The study started with 162. Only 108 either got on to, went on to transplant or received more than four cycles of azacitidine. Uh, 38 of the 162 patients uh, either died or had disease progression during their first four cycles of azacitidine. Again, we see, what, we see that in the real world. Um, so the folks on the, uh, the continuous uh, azacitidine arm actually had a little bit better response. Their, their response rate was like 56% compared to 27%, almost twice as much response in, in those who, who did not find a donor or go on to transplant. And this is, uh, to me, one thing that always uh, seemed to be uh, uh, maybe an unavoidable flaw in these transplant studies is, you, you know, your, your burden of disease or how sick you are, it's hard to account for you know, your genetic luck in having, um, you know, a sibling or having a 10 out of 10 match uh, and having the avail availability for a transplant or having good social social support uh, that transplant centers will consider you. All right. So the results are what you'd expect. MDS is incurable. Okay. So we would expect our Kappenmeyer curve for overall survival or for progression of disease on the azacitinib arm to go to 0%. It's an incurable disease. We'd expect the 100% of people that get azacitidine, eventually, if you follow them long enough, that number will go to 0%, okay? 
we would hope that with stem cell transplant, some of these folks could be cured, which means the, the transplant arm does not go to zero. It plateaus a little bit. So overall survival, uh, or the, the primary endpoints here um, that we see are event-free survival uh, and overall survival. Now, what you see in, in both these curves is what you would expect. Initially, the azacitidine line is winning. It is higher. It is above the transplant line on the Katmire curve. That's because transplants are dangerous. Uh, one in five people who got transplant died in the, in the first year due to treatment-related mortality, either from probably infection or graft-versus-host disease. Now, in the long run, though, azacitidine is going to stop working. These people will progress. And what we see in the event-free survival curve is that by two years, the, that, that, the, that event-free survival line for azacitidine has gone to, to almost 10%. They've all either died or progressed. And we do see a plateau in the transplant arm around 50, maybe 40%, because those folks, we hope, are cured after transplant. And um, the, 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 the three-year overall survival numbers here are 50% with transplant versus 33% with azacitidine, which is exactly what they, those are the exact numbers they built their power analysis on, but they, they didn't have enough patients to kind of reach that power. Uh, and so it wasn't significant, although they think eh, with longer fault, maybe it will be, that remains to be seen. The interesting thing here, and the, the reason I wanted to talk about this is a good teaching point if you're a trainee, uh, because if you just look at the hazard ratio for overall survival, it's 0.83. Um, but these, these curves cross, and, and that hazard ratio is looking at the risk over the whole study period. And, it, and it's really not the best thing if you see these curves cross. And looking at the lines, you can see this almost like a race where you have, and, and the Olympics going on right now, and you see this in some of the, like the 400 or 800 meter races where somebody starts out real fast, or in the swimming, someone starts out real fast. As a sighting starts out real fast, looks like it's better. Uh, but in the long run, uh, you know, the, 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 the athlete with better endurance ends up winning the race. And in the long run, if you're able to get a transplant, those are your best odds of being alive multiple years later with MDS than with azacitidine. Nothing new here, necessarily. This is what we would have expected from this, and I don't know this literature. There very well may have been something published previously. They don't reference that a whole lot in their, in their introduction and talk about that uh, to any great extent in their discussion. Uh, but this is what we'd expect, but if you're a, a you know, trainee in oncology, uh, new to evaluating the literature, this is how uh, is a good way, I think, to evaluate these studies. You can't just look at median overall survival. Uh, in that case, the median overall survival are pretty similar because the curves for event-free survival, sorry, the event-free survival curves, uh, median event-free survival looks pretty similar because the curves happen across right at 50%. Um, but you see those curves separate a whole lot uh, after one uh, to two to two and a half years uh, worth a plateau and the transplant arm and event-free survival and that azacitidine arm kind of goes to zero. All right, so that's what I have this week. We like to keep it short and sweet so you can get on, uh, you know, and not, uh, you know, listen to this on the commute, on the way home, listen to some music, listen to something fun. Uh, thank you uh, for listening. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at FarmDetail. Well, I will probably uh, put some pictures out of these curves uh, or uh, follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Mm-hmm.